Our lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. So if you would turn there to Luke's Gospel, and as you turn there, would you stand with me this morning as we read Holy Scripture together? Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we are beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, the overarching question that I want to attempt to answer together is how do we avoid becoming the Pharisee in this parable? How do we avoid becoming the Pharisee in this parable? Jesus presents two men, both of whom are sinners, both of whom need a Savior, but the two men have completely different self-images. One man, the tax collector, sees himself as a sinner, and cries out to the Lord for mercy. The other man, a Pharisee, sees himself as being more righteous before God than many other people whom he names, adulterers, extortioners, even this tax collector over here. I wish that guy said, hey, I can hear you, right? Hey, I'm right here. Thank God I'm not like those guys. But what's interesting is Jesus says only one of these guys goes home justified or made right before God. Only one of them goes home justified, and that's the tax collector. So, in summation, if you want to be made right before God, be the tax collector. Don't be the Pharisee. Be the tax collector. But who are the Pharisees? So, if you've grown up in church, you've probably come to see the Pharisees as like the bad guys in the Gospels, the bad guys, the opponents of Jesus, And you wouldn't be wrong about that. That is true. However, here's what I would throw out to you this morning. That's not at all how they would have been seen by religious people in their day. The Pharisees would not have been seen as the bad guys. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says this about the Pharisees. He says the Pharisees were essentially the home Bible study movement in the land of Israel. The ones who wanted to interpret the Torah in such a way that everything was clear and so that everyone could follow the whole Torah. So the Torah is what are the first five books in our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law of God. Right? So, so he talks about the Torah and the fact that the Pharisees were all about everybody having access to the Torah, the Torah being understandable to everybody, and everybody being able to follow the Torah. So, so this was a big part of what they were about. But part of McKnight's point is that most of us, American, like evangelical, Bible-believing people, 
we would have probably really liked the Pharisees because they are perhaps the most like us. But here's the problem. And again, I want to quote Scott McKnight because he puts this so well. Here's the problem. The Pharisees taught love of the Torah, but Jesus comes along teaching a Torah of love. Do you notice that distinction? The Pharisees taught love of the Torah, but Jesus comes along teaching a Torah of love. They taught love of the law. Jesus comes along teaching a law of love. And those things are in stark contrast to each other. So forget for a moment about the fact that they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. What came along before that was that he offended their religious sensibilities because he was doing things like healing people on the Sabbath and hanging out with sinners. Now just step back for a moment. What was he doing? He was healing people, like people who had been diseased their entire lives. Jesus is bringing them to life in many ways for the first time. He's healing people that offended their love of the law. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. The very people that theoretically the Pharisees would want to give over their lives to God. Like these are the people who we would love to see them follow the law of the Torah. But then, and these are the people Jesus is hanging out with. But this created all kinds of controversy. Jesus was the one, in their eyes, who was in violation of the law of God for doing things like that. They weren't in violation of the law of God. And so, as a result, in their minds, they're more righteous than even Christ himself. So here's what's fascinating to me. The Pharisees prove that it is possible to follow God's law and yet break it at the same time. It's possible to follow God's law and yet break it at the same time. We see this in the Pharisee in this parable. What makes him unlike the adulterer or the tax collector? What, what makes him unlike the adulterer or the tax collector in his mind? Well, in his opinion, it's, it's that he fasts twice a week. And that he gives a tithe of everything that he gets. He follows the law. So in his mind, he is less sinful and so more righteous. In fact, he goes above and beyond what the Torah even taught. The Torah doesn't teach fasting twice a week. The Torah really only teaches fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. So so he's like upping the ante. And so probably in his mind, he's thinking, "Not, not just I fast, because the Torah commands fasting, but I do it even more than the Torah commands. So I'm even somehow more holy. So guys, this is just like classic self-righteousness, right? This is, this is the kind of thinking that will lead you to believe that you can somehow earn a seat at God's table by what you do. That by you being righteous, or by you being holy, or by you trying to follow the law perfectly, that somehow you can get into God's good graces. Somehow you can earn your way into the kingdom of heaven, or kind of buy your way into the kingdom of heaven through your action. And what's amazing about this, even with this guy, right, is that the Torah that he loves so much teaches that that's not totally possible, That there has to be sacrifice in order to be made right before God. Not not just fasting, not just tithing, but there has to, at this point in time, there has to be animal sacrifice as well in order to be justified before God. So, 
We cannot earn a seat at God's table by what we do. The Bible tells us clearly that that is impossible. And this kind of thinking, if we embrace it, or if you've already embraced it, it will lead us to create church cultures that are extremely difficult for outsiders to engage, like the tax collectors of our age. Who, who are the tax collectors in our world today? Who are the people that the church looks out and sees in the same way that this Pharisee saw this man? Now, by the way, both of these guys are like worshiping God in the temple together. And, and, and isn't it amazing that this one man can see this other worshiper of God who is pouring out his heart in worship in such a disdainful way, right? Isn't that incredible? So there's a paradox at work here. The Pharisees, as we said, essentially taught love of the Scriptures, which sounds like a great thing. However, here's the problem, and this can seem a little confusing, so I want to I try to say this as clearly as possible. The Scriptures don't really teach love of the Scriptures. The Scriptures don't really teach love of the Scriptures. What the Scriptures teach is love of God and neighbor. The Scriptures teach love of God and neighbor. So here's a way to think about this. The Bible, in and of itself, is not our Savior. It's not the Bible it's not this book that saves us. No, no, who saves us? Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Now, the Bible is his word. The Bible is true. We come to faith through hearing the word of God. We learn about the gospel through this book. We've been sent to proclaim the gospel that we find in God's word. But the ones whom we are to love, the ones we are to pour out our passion to, are God and neighbor. God himself and the world that he has created. This doesn't mean we don't cherish the scriptures. This doesn't mean we don't have affection for the scriptures. Even David in the Psalms says things like, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. So it's not that we don't care about this, or it's not that we don't love this, but this in and of itself is just a book. It's the word of God. Truth can be found in here. But Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who went to the cross. Now, that may seem like a really like minuscule differentiation to make. And yet, for the Pharisees, it had become this big thing. Because loving this had taken priority. And this, somehow, had become an idol to them. The Scriptures had become an idol to them. To the point where they almost worshipped following the law over following God. It's this really like kind of wily thing that the enemy has done, this very almost confusing thing where it's like it seems like it's right, but it's actually not right. If we love the Bible more than we love God and neighbor, the Bible can actually become an idol to us. So, None of this means that we don't seek to follow God's word, but to the contrary, in seeking to follow God's word, we want to strive to love our brothers and sisters well. Uh, pastor and theologian Ray Ortland says this, Mere doctrinal correctness can be harsh and coercive, but beauty turns heads, beauty melts hearts, beauty works with gently irresistible power. He goes on to say, the worst people 
I've known have been doctrinally correct. And the best people I've known have also been doctrinally correct. The difference is the ugly people use the doctrine to reinforce their superiority, while the beautiful people receive the doctrine as a glimpse of Christ and they bow low. One group uses correct doctrine to reinforce their own superiority. The other group uses the doctrine of Scripture to reinforce the superiority of Christ. Those are two very different things, aren't they? One is about my self-righteousness. The other one is about the righteousness of Christ that I shouldn't be entitled to, that I don't deserve, but that is given to me freely as a gift. And so the Pharisees, for all their love of the Scriptures, they were terrible at loving their neighbors because they only wanted to love those who were like them and those who affirmed the system that they had constructed. And and we are no different in this regard. We're no different in that. Of course, our natural inclination is to love what is most like us, what looks like us, sounds like us, thinks like us, and to fear or denigrate what is least like us. The Pharisees were noted for their ability to separate themselves from the very people who were most in need of the Torah. To separate themselves from the very people who actually needed the Scriptures. People like tax collectors. If you don't know, what's the deal with tax collectors? Tax collectors are kind of used um, as just kind of this stereotypical, uh, you know, kind of title for sinners in the New Testament. Um, You'll see that Jesus dined with sinners and tax collectors, as if those two groups of people, there's one really broad group, here's one really like a subset seemingly, but they come together in the Gospels. What's happening here? Well, Rome, who had conquered the Jews at this point, Rome is collecting taxes. But rather than uh, sending their own governmental emissaries to collect the taxes, essentially private companies, private individuals were allowed to bid to be the ones who collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. So as a result, what would happen was you had individuals who worked for the government like a contractor works for the government, And they would set their own prices, right? Because they wanted to make money for themselves as well. So they would charge exorbitant taxes that were above and beyond what the actual governmental taxes were. And this was, you know, terrible. Like, so, so people, in many cases, just like had, had nothing because they were having to pay their taxes to the government. And in many cases, the ones who were collecting taxes were Jews, And so the other Jews just looked at them as complete traitors. Like, why in the world would you do this to us? As sinners, right? Because they were putting these horrible burdens on other people. So that's kind of what's going on here. So the Pharisees, for all their love of the Scriptures, they were terrible at loving neighbors. We see this over and over and over again in the Gospels. And and then Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along, and in the midst of them like separating themselves from all these other people, Jesus actually presses into relationship with drunks and prostitutes and tax collectors. Um, there's this amazing scene in Matthew 2, ch- uh, yeah, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, Follow me, 
Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, here's what Jesus said to them. I love this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the irony in that statement is everybody's in need of a Savior. Everybody's in need of a Savior. But some of you, Jesus is insinuating, don't recognize your need of a Savior. Some of you think you are righteous. And you think you're righteous because you're not doing the thing that I'm doing. You think you're righteous because you've separated yourselves from these tax collectors. Not because you've pressed into relationship with them. In your mind, that would be like cavorting with sinners. Many of you know our friend uh, Stephen Partain. If you don't, Stephen and his wife Morgan uh, and their three kids were sent out by Covenant Church in Bossier uh, about two years ago to plant a church in New Orleans. And they've had a pretty remarkable story thus far. Originally, they moved into uh, the Irish Channel area in New Orleans. Uh, They were just going to kind of move into the neighborhood and build relationships with their neighbors and like slowly over many years kind of build a church around that place. But not long, less than a year, I think, even, after they had moved to New Orleans, Stephen was basically given a church building in the Bywater area of New Orleans. And uh, so suddenly he gets this church building um, that has multiple like other properties that come with it. And there's like a small contingency of members still at this old church. And so suddenly they are in the middle of kind of like replanting and rebuilding this church that already existed. And they're calling it Grace Community Church. Now, New Orleans is a tough city in general. Um, Like it has a history of chewing up and spitting out church planters. And so Stephen's already doing ministry in a hard place, but this particular neighborhood is a hard place in a hard place. Um, One of the challenges in this neighborhood is that there's like a heavy gay population in the neighborhood who like understandably don't want to have anything to do with the church. Um, The church in general does not have a great track record when it like comes to loving gay people. Um, But Stephen, however, recognizes that if their church is going to do real gospel ministry in the place where they are, they can't act like all these people around them aren't there, right? They can't act like the the culture of this neighborhood doesn't exist. No, to the contrary, they are sent into the neighborhood with the gospel. So if you're going to do gospel-centered ministry in a neighborhood with a predominantly gay population, well, what do you want? You want gay people to come to your church, right? So why? For the same reason you want anybody to come to your church. Like you want people to hear the gospel and you want their lives to be changed, right? So, so that's part of their mission now is to just love the people in their neighborhood well. It should be the mission of any church, no matter where you are, no matter who's around you, no matter who's in your neighborhood, that you would love them well with the gospel, But as Stephen has learned, this makes church people super uncomfortable. 
This makes church people super uncomfortable. Um, this would have made the Pharisees incredibly uncomfortable. For some reason, for some reason, we want people to have like fully dealt with their sin before they ever come and sit in our worship service. Like we, we want things to be easy. We want things to be clean. We don't want things to be messy. We don't want someone else's sin to like inconvenience us or make us uncomfortable. We want people to act like we do and think like we do, right? That's what makes us comfortable. It's so fascinating though for them that the challenge hasn't been the neighborhood. The neighborhood has been fairly welcoming to them. Like they've had a number of people who have come into the life of their church and have heard the gospel. Like God is doing some great things in their midst. And yet the challenge has been from other Christians who are like, wait a second, what are y'all doing? Like you guys, are you guys, are y'all like super liberal? Well, well, no, not at all. Like, do you think it's okay? Like, that the Bible says it's okay to be gay? No, that's not what we think. We're just loving people well. And guess what? That's really what people want. Um, now, now, you may go, man, they must have a big challenge ahead of them. Um, one of the challenges in doing ministry in that kind of a culture is, is that many people are unwilling to recognize that homosexuality is a sin. Um, and that's true. Like, our culture has come to affirm that as something that, like, isn't wrong. But here's what I wonder. Is it possible that you have sin in your life that you don't recognize as sin because the culture affirms it? I was thinking about that this week as I was reading about this Pharisee. Is it possible that you have sin in your life that you don't recognize as sin because our culture affirms it. That was definitely true for the Pharisee in this parable. The last line of our text tells us that the real sin here, the real reason why this Pharisee isn't going down to his house justified, is because he isn't recognizing himself as a sinner. What was the very last line of this? It's a famous line. Jesus repeats it multiple times. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He isn't humbling himself before the Lord. So his sin is pride couched in religious fervor, which was more than affirmed by his culture. And this guy was righteous in his culture. It was celebrated by his culture. So is it possible that you also potentially have something going on like that in your own life? And if so, aren't you glad that the doors of the church are open to you? Aren't you glad that the gospel is available to you? Aren't you glad that you aren't somebody that other Christians look at and go, eh? This isn't for them. So Stephen and Morgan have formed some great relationships with people in their neighborhood. They're just loving them well. And listen, it's absolutely possible to love people well and at the same time not be okay with all of their sin, right? That's totally possible. Stephen hasn't changed his perspective on biblical sexuality, and that isn't preventing him from loving his neighbors. To the contrary, it's pushing him out 
to love his neighbors. You don't have to affirm everything about somebody in order to love them well or to care for them. That's just one of the lies of our postmodern culture, that love is like full affirmation of everything about you. But that's not what love is. If that's what, if that's what love is, then I don't love my kids. Because there's so many things about my kids that I want to be different. Like, I want them to grow and develop and change and learn things and do things differently and stop being disobedient in this way and become obedient in this way, right? If, if I just go, well, this is just how my kids are, this is just what it is, that's not real love. Real love is I want them to grow up and develop and ultimately get to the point where they become their own person and they follow Jesus and they leave our house. Like, that's like success in parenting, And so if we love the people around us, then we also need to love them with the gospel and have a gospel vision for their lives. And go, man, I want more for you, right? I want more for you. I want to help shape and develop you. We have been sent as the church to make disciples which isn't just to get people to say they believe what we believe, but is to actually pour into people and see them grow up into Christ. And, and so here's the thing, guys. This is exactly what Jesus did for you, by the way. Jesus sacrificed himself for you precisely because he loved you and precisely because he was not okay with how you were. Jesus sacrificed himself for you precisely because he loved you and precisely because he was not okay with how you were. So so listen, that moment you start to go, oh no, not those people, right? Or or, or the moment that you start to think, I got to get out of here. Oh man, at least I never did anything like that guy or that girl, or at least I'm not that. Man, that's the moment when we need to wake up to the gospel, and to what Jesus has done for us. We cannot lose sight of who we were. The Apostle Paul reminds himself of this all the time. Listen to what he says to his student, Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So so Paul's like boasting of the fact that in his former life, man, I was the chief sinner. But Jesus has saved me despite the things that I had done, Paul reminds himself of who he was. He doesn't lose sight of who he used to be. And and if anybody could boast in his righteousness, if anybody could boast in the things that he had done, it's that guy. But no, instead he reminds himself of who he was and he boasts in Christ. Jesus saves sinners. That's what he does In fact, that's exactly what comes right after the famous John 3.16, John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here's the thing, and here's what I close with. If that is the Jesus that you follow, like the Jesus that loves everybody, 
the, the Jesus that proclaims a gospel that is for everybody, then here's the thing. You have been sent with the same mission. John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If that is the Jesus that you follow, then we embrace, we embrace this mission and loving sinners is just part of the deal. And we love sinners because we are sinners who have been loved by Christ, who gave his life for us as a ransom. Paul went on to tell Timothy that the reason why Jesus had saved him was so that even more people would be saved. And listen, I believe the exact same thing is true for your life as well. You haven't simply been saved so that one day down the road when you die, you can jet off to heaven. Guys, you have been saved with a purpose, and that purpose is so that you would go and make disciples, so that you would go and love in the way that you have been loved, so that you would go and show grace in the way that you have been shown grace, so that you would go and declare and demonstrate the beauty of this gospel message that Jesus declared and demonstrated before us as well. He is the one who saves, right? He is the one who went to the cross and died on our behalf so that we might find life and hope. Why would we want anyone, why would we want anyone to be deprived of that? So let us go to him in prayer this morning. And then let's come to the table and celebrate what he has done for us on the cross. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. The hope of eternal life. But at the same time, we recognize that you have purpose. That you have a mission for us now. That your desire is that we would take your gospel and go. That we would declare it, that we would demonstrate it before our friends and neighbors. That we would not love other things, even things that are of you more than we love you. Father, help us to know the difference. Help us to bow low before Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.